mean, I was thinking about the Torah portion this week, Beshalach, and it's like very much about fear and courage. And it is, you know, not not letting fear take hold in your life and having that courage. And with like the environmental crisis that we are living in now, it can be so dismaying and discouraging. Like what can one person do? But literally, Tubishvada is saying, we are celebrating trees. We are grateful for everything the earth provides for us. And we can we can address this individually and collectively. Welcome to Purple Honey, a gathering of female voices where we explore in conversation the sweet spot between Jewish wisdom and feminine spirituality. I am your host, Jody Bayless. We are on the heels of the month of Adar, and we are saying goodbye to the month of Shvat. Shvat is such a good month. It is the month where we celebrated one of the four Jewish New Years, the New Year of Trees. Shvat is the month where we began to imagine the first taste of spring, where in the Northern Hemisphere, the quality of light shifts and there is more of it. Shvat is the month where the sap begins to bubble up inside the trees and we celebrated that magnificence by eating and admiring fruits of all kinds. During a Tubishvat outing to the National Botanical Garden with our Jewish community, the New Synagogue Project, when I was in the Botanical Garden, there was this sense along with the trees that my body was also waking up. In the midst of all of the luscious canopies and the knobs of tangling vines, Shvat was also the month where we read the Exodus story and that communal retelling will stay with us as echoes until we arrive at the harvest holidays of Passover in just a couple of full moons and Shavuot. Shvat came with so many seeds, so many tastes, so many stories, and what we imagine growth could look like. So when I met my guest in today's episode, Sarah Newman, during a gathering at my own house during Sukkot, I was over the moon to find a kindred spirit who is a food storyteller of sorts. Sarah Newman is a writer, food enthusiast, cook, and social justice advocate, and she created Nishnoosh, which means Tasty Treat, a blog where she details her year-long project to learn the weekly Torah portion and create recipes inspired by themes that emerge from the text. And when she began this project in 2014, it was also the end of the Shemitah cycle, an agricultural year of rest that occurs every seven years. So Sarah incorporated local and seasonal ingredients and prepared vegetarian recipes to integrate Shemitah principles into her project. Sarah continues to develop recipes inspired by Jewish communities she has met around the world from India to Italy, and she continues to write about current issues as they relate to food through a Jewish lens. As food is at my own core of my professional family life and spiritual life, I was so excited about our conversation. We explore food and the web it weaves in our lives as it intersects with all the things. We talk 
food and health, food and social justice, veganism, food as a creative language to process deep themes emerging from Torah and Jewish cycles. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. It was truly delicious. As you were growing up, what did you, what did you like to eat? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and just as an aside, it's funny because I'm giving a talk tomorrow night at a synagogue about veganism. Mm-hmm. And so they asked me, please tell your personal story. So, but growing up, it was interesting because we had meat and dairy in our house, but not that much. So we would always have chicken on Shabbat and I would eat a lot of tuna fish sandwiches and tuna melts and then an occasional hamburger, but we were not a heavy meat and potatoes traditional American household. And I think part of it is because my mom growing up, um, she was when I was growing up, she was a pescatarian, plus she was a wildlife conservationist. So there was already this sense in our house of welfare for animals, plus we had a million animals in our house. So uh, we were just not a very meat-centric household. But um, it didn't mean that I didn't eat meat. Um, But I also had a kind of repulsion to a lot of meat naturally, instinctually. I'll never forget like school lunches sometimes where there'd be meat and I just couldn't eat it or being at a friend's house and they would serve meat and I just didn't always want it. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. But some of my favorite things growing up, I always, it's weird, like I loved salads mm-hmm. and vegetables and I liked cooking and I had like a little like Sesame Street baking set with like make cakes and I went to cooking camp one year. I mean, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's always been in my, been part of me. Mm-hmm. So food, so it all, so it feels like that, um, so food was very much present in your mm. life and on many levels with your mom being a conservationist as well you also also just having having that in your realm of yes in your yes. personal space yes mm-hmm. but i think also i mean american food was so bad when i was growing up i mean mm. the culture of food it was gross it was like velveta instant mac and cheese and I mean, I just grow. The food was gross. Like we had, you know, the idea of like organic food or things like that were not there. Iceberg lettuce, like canned peaches. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I grew up eating these things, but it yeah. was so there. That was what we would eat. And it's funny, um, actually, growing up, my sister and I, because Velveeta was certainly something in our house, and my sister and I created. I'll just say that with. <laughs> You know, bunny ears is the, um, these things called pizza crackers. So we'd take like Melba toasts, Prego, <laughs> and Velveeta cheese. Wow. And like, it was like so full in my tongue. And to your point, like, about the food that we're, we're eating, this this level of, um, um, yeah, I don't, the word gross, to, I think just like this, it was, I mean, I guess processed is one word, um, but I, I remember food becoming more alive. This mm. was in my own household by the time I got to high school. Yes, yes. Like Shabbat dinners certainly transformed. Yes, mm. I remember going to the Bethesda Food Co-op and buying TVP, 
mm. textured vegetable protein when I was like a teenager making chilies, things like that. Like that was so radical at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But clearly I've moved on from like Velveeta mac and cheese and things like that. And to go to the co-op and see all these things mm. and start eating them. Was it, was, it was like a novel? Totally novel. And oh my gosh, what is this? And how do I cook with this? Mm-hmm. And did you find that it was a, it was self-teaching or was that also part of your growing up experience? Oh, it was self-teaching because my mom hates cooking. Um, so she would, it was, my mom was the one who would cook generally um, because my dad would always come home very late from work. So she would prepare dinner for my sister and me. Um, and it was always very, just very basic food because she hated cooking. And then it was interesting because my dad would come home several hours later and often make a salad for his dinner and I would come and join him for that. Mm-hmm. So when I started going like to the Bethesda Food Co-op and finding TVP and other things, I was bringing them home and cooking them myself and just starting to figure out how to cook mm-hmm. since my poor mother hated doing this. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was, I think, you know, the nascent stage of developing a healthier more uh, natural, whatever the word is, food culture in America. Because in high school, I worked at a bakery that was like the first artisanal breads in D.C. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman in charge of the cheese department at this bakery. And I learned from her about cheeses. And I learned, wow, there's more than like cheddar and Swiss. And mm-hmm. so that was also very eye-opening. And she was French. and <laughs> Like an introduction into the nuances exactly Mm -hmm. yeah there's a whole world out there it is amazing to think of like these formative moments Mm -hmm. um it's funny when you said artisanal bread i was like wow like you know for home challah bakers Mm. in the 80s or whatever like i guess you know there wasn't i mean i didn't have homemade challah each week it wasn't until high school for me that i was interested in baking challah Mm. so um yeah, this idea of artisanal bread becoming a thing more broadly, but then in our homes, baking challah, we, there actually always was this opportunity mm. weekly to have artisanal bread. So I always love those, those Jewish connections. Yes, yes, totally. So interesting. Totally. And it's just interesting how these societal transformations where there is suddenly the cheeses and the breads and people bringing those into their homes and then just how that organically would spread and now you can go anywhere and these products are ubiquitous but just starting with like just a few individual little businesses yeah how that was so transformative yeah and um yeah and also in thinking about variety i remember in college for the first time drinking eden soy Mm. Or Eden, isn't that brand? Soy milk? Yes. Out of the box? Yes. And I personally love like gritty, earthy flavors. So I like loved it. Um, and now they have, of course, you know, silk and 365 right. brands and that are, are more like along the neutral flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, of course, the almond milks and all the. It, yes, it's, the hemp, the oat. Yeah. The level of variety is also another. It's crazy. My sister actually just sent me a photo or 
the other day of the Eden soy, and she said, this is still the best soy milk. I'm like, even thinking about it, I'm like, I want to I wanna go have a little cup. Of <laughs> it's so rich and creamy. It's so rich and creamy. It, it was like, felt like, a, it tasted for me, to me, like a milkshake. It was such mm-hmm. a full mouth experience. And anyway, um, and I um, also remember, for I went to school in Southeast Ohio, um, and there was a co that was my first introduction to a co-op, as well as like a small rest, like a small, there was a small Mexican restaurant that only used local ingredients. Wow. And I didn't quite know what was different about it, but knew that I loved it and whatever mm-hmm. it was, I had to have that. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's kind of like that Alice Waters sensibility right. of like, I just want to go where the flavor is. Exactly. This tastes good. This is real food. This is not iceberg lettuce covered in pesticides. But back to the the milks, it's interesting because I have a cousin who is transitioning now to a vegan diet and has been texting me each day with questions and photos and so forth. And so when he first started on this process a few weeks ago, he texted me from Whole Foods and sent me a picture of the plant-based milk section. And he said, Mm. I can't believe I've never noticed this. I've been here 10,000 times and I've walked by this and never even seen any of these. Help me, what do I buy? So th- that, those two statements right there, it's like, one, I've never seen this. Yes. Two, I'm overwhelmed because there's so much variety. Totally. And I was just amazed on so many levels. And I told him, buy a range, do taste tests, figure out what you like. Yeah. Because you might like Oatly or you might like the soy. So, um, but I think so much of it is how, how we go about in the world and... We all have our blinders, and so, you know, growing up and just eating Velveeta and iceberg lettuce and canned peaches and stuff, like, I didn't know anything else, but I didn't like it, but I didn't know, oh, there's Mm. other options. Mm -hmm. And then starting to go to the co-op or working at this bakery, things like that, I started to learn, oh, there's other foods Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that are out there, and... We can eat in a different way, and we can eat better food. Mm-hmm. So, fast forwarding from your childhood to 2014, when there was a shift for you, it was Rosh Hashanah. It was a new year. It was also um, a year, the year of Shemitah, mm-hmm. which we can talk a little more about. But it, generally, the concept of um, agriculturally, historically, the land every seven years is fallow. Mm-hmm. So you were inspired to embark on this project. And can you tell us a little bit more about what that felt like, how that spark was ignited for you? Yeah, it was this weird confluence of so many things. Um, I was living in Los Angeles and was very immersed in the Jewish world there and was living a very observant life. But I hadn't been raised um, in an observant household and felt that there were so many gaps in my knowledge um, in Judaism. And it's obviously still an ongoing, lifelong learning process. But one thing I realized is I had never sat down and read the Torah each week and had never not only read it, but really studied it and tried to learn and read commentaries. And at the same time, I was really um, 
curious about trying to look at how to process what I would be learning and how to not just keep this for myself, but through this exploration and year-long commitment to really deeply studying Torah, how could I be sharing this with people and decided to do a blog. And because I feel my creative side in life is through writing and through food and it's how I express myself, I came up with this crazy idea that I would create recipes that are inspired by the teachings of that Parsha and that use that as a way to share what I'd learned and then set this doubly hard standard for myself, which was that everything that I would cook would have to be purchased from local farmers, which in LA is really easy because there's year round incredible produce. And I was already uh, such a devoted um, patron of my local farmer's market and extraordinarily committed to sustainable agriculture and supporting local farmers. So it wasn't a stretch for me to do that, but it did make it more challenging in the recipes I would create because I had created this standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the added layer was that it is there was the year of Shemitah, and so so many Jewish organizations were really focused on exploring Shemitah and what this means and how it manifests in the 21st century. And so, and particularly being outside of Israel. So it was really a confluence of all of these different um, strands in my life of trying to explore Torah, expressing that through food, supporting the local farmers, and then looking at Shemitah, as well as a lot of other issues that um, tended to fall under the guise of agriculture and looking at those through each uh, Torah portion. Mm-hmm. So there's so there's so many layers, which <laughs> um, it's very Jewish in the sense yes. that there's all these layers of meaning. Yes. Um, I think that's what I'm so the most grateful for around our Jewish tradition is that it's about weaving meaning mm-hmm. together. Um, and so, so you'd mentioned that you, you had not studied the Torah portion, like formally each week before. How do you, do you feel using the the food as a tool to relate to and to express like how you process this? Um, how do you feel that, um, it's sort of helped you understand the Torah portion versus if, if you had not used food at mm. all. What did the food do for you? It's a really good question. For me, it's um, the farmer, it's sort of like being a painter, and I am not a painter, but I look at the farmer's market as sort of the color palette. And then in the kitchen, how do I create something that's reflecting these ideas? So sometimes it could be something extraordinarily simple, but there was so many layers of meaning in it, even though visually or the ingredients might be very simple, whereas sometimes it would be something that's very complex recipe, many different ingredients. But it was, for me, 
food is so much of a language of how I can communicate and engage with people. And if I had just written about the Torah portion without the food, one, I wouldn't feel qualified to do that. And obviously because we have an extraordinary history and number of scholars who write about the Torah portion each week. And so I don't feel I would be contributing anything. What would I be adding? Um, but I felt, okay, I'm not going to go that route because I'm sort of at a kindergarten level and these people are scholars. But I am passionate about cooking and Judaism and I don't want to just have yet another Jewish food blog that's doing another version of like matzo ball soup, but that I can infuse these foods with Jewish values and ideas in sort of a more abstract interpretive way. It's so beautiful. And um, I completely resonate. <laughs> I, I, I live in that level too. And you call it, there's two, two word, two phrases that um, stuck with me. First of all, it was, it was Jewish food 2.0. Yes. Basically yeah. <laughs> what you just described is taking those, pulling from those themes or uh, that emerge either from our texts or from Jewish time and mm-hmm. using food as the creative expressive tool to, um, to really like embody and capture some of these universal themes. Exactly. Um, and, um, and I, I've been reflecting on this as well since we are in to be shot time mm-hmm. and sort of the conversation I've been having with myself is, um, which then I read basically on your on your blog, so perfect. <laughs> um, which is like, okay, there's Jewish food, and then there's Jewish food, mm. and so to what you just said, there's matzah ball soup, or there's whatever the the Sephardic um, traditions are, or you know, um, like uh, Iranian rice. With yes. there's all of these Jewish foods, but and then there's um, I feel like we're we're really in a, a, a time of embodiment where we're going yeah. back to the land, we're going back to body-based rituals, mm-hmm. um, you know, in this environment, in this, this time of climate change, it's almost like we're being pulled back there naturally. Yeah, like We have no choice but to be on the land right now. And so, um, and to um, draw from those body-based, land-based mm-hmm. traditions. Um, and so this idea of Jewish food 2.0, I feel like there's really, there's something there that you've captured. Um, and I'm just thinking almost, I was, you know, I, your blog is amazing in that, you know, by, by month over the time that you took on this project for the Shemitah year and now continue to, um, to capture Jewish time, seasonal cycles, and um, themes that come from the months. Um, this idea of, of, you know, what one that comes to my mind was actually cl- getting close to the Torah portion we'll be reading soon is the building of the tabernacle. Mm. And there was one year that you used very colorful foods mm-hmm. and almost like using sticks and assembly. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit if you, about I'm that? I'm trying to remember which the recipe was. It might have been like, I think like roasted, roasted, what was that? 
roast it was like different roasted like turnips and potatoes or something but mm. yeah but a lot of what I've tried to do is using the food in a more symbolic way and I know a lot of traditional Jewish foods do have symbolism like why do people eat say round carrot pieces at Rosh Hashanah to symbolize gold coins like we do have that mm -hmm. but um I think a lot of the things that I tried to do was taking concepts that I had derived from that Torah portion and then translating that into food. So I remember there was one, I think it was, for example, about all the different tribes and I called it, we are family. And so I used like 12 different ingredients. And then the idea was you take all the different ingredients, cook them separately and then put them together as a stew. Um, mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. there was one where I think, I can't remember what the portion was, Torah portion was, but it was about humility and vanity. And so I'd made kind of a spongy, very spongy pancake. Um, so there was um, mm -hmm. one that I had done um, where you, it was the idea of like separation and unity. So the mm. ingredients, there was two ingredients that were presented separately. And then the idea was at the table, you fold them in together. So it's not as on the nose per se as the golden carrots at Rosh Hashanah idea or the black eyed peas at Rosh Hashanah or Hamantashen at Purim. It's more esoteric. Yeah. And I, I love thinking about it as alchemy. Mm. In that, um, and I'm sure you have read or know of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Yes. And the Sami Nose Rats book that, I can't remember when it came out, but now that it's a Netflix series, it's yeah. woo, exploded. Um, I read that and was like, whoa. Like, you know, in reading about um, how fat, you know, can coat particles and mm. or like with the water content make, a pie make it also rise so there's you know there's with through the steam and then there makes a flaky you know all that stuff I'm like this is alchemy and this is a spiritual tomb oh, <laughs> or tome wow. it's a spiritual tome that's when i in reading that mm, and um wow i tried to write jot some of these ideas down around the jewish new year um what, what did I, oh my God, I can't remember what I called it. Taste and teshuva. Mm. The idea that tasting certain, if it's an acid or um, how salt can elevate. Mm -hmm. Can these themes, as you said, in an esoteric way, can these themes like penetrate through yeah. um, our bodies and even more deeply um, all that lives in our bodies, emotion, Tra even trauma, memory, mm -hmm. is there a way that it can like bring us a little closer to, at that time, transformation around Rosh Hashanah or even to Bishvat, connecting mm -hmm. to trees and to, our, to the land and to growth? Yeah. So yeah, that, that language you're using, mm -hmm. is, it's right there. And um, you also use the, the phrase edible midrash. Mm-hmm. So Midrashim, the, the tradition of Midrash, I think Aviva Zornberg refers to it as stories within the stories. Mm, beautiful. Such a beautiful tradition in Judaism that really drives forth our spiritual, our narrative 
in a creative, artful way. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, what do you think of when, uh, as you were creating this idea, uh, edible midrash? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I so I keep always tinkering with what the subtitle is of the blog, and then at one point I realized. Well, I am reading all these midrashim to understand the Torah and the the idea that the midrashim help us understand concepts or the parsha or to explain the inexplicable or to just even help create um, a narrative around a very um, complex idea presented. And so I realized, well, I am telling stories and I am trying to interpret it's just in this edible form Mm. and what does that mean and I think Judaism is we're always yes there is the historic midrashim that is that we use to very much understand so much of the Torah and Tanakh but in the present day we're still creating midrashim and different ways of trying to understand and be Jewish and that Judaism is not dormant. We're not just studying Midrashim from hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago. We are still to this day through all the different ways that people are creating and infusing Judaism with new life and mm-hmm. new ways of practicing. And so I've just brought this idea of we can create through food ways to understand Torah and literally eat and embody that. And I think it also just touches on the idea of the importance in Judaism of health. And so, yes, I make unhealthy foods, but in general, a lot of it is tends to be healthier. And so, again, this idea that we're ingesting concepts and foods that are part of our Jewish path. Mm. So funny. As you were talking, the word create came in my mind. Mm. And then right in the middle of the word create, it's very like, is it Shoresh, the root of the word? Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Wow. wow. Excellent. <laughs> and I th- as I was oh thinking this, you said the word create as I was. Brilliant. Whoa. Create. Eat. Um, and I should have said this right at the beginning, but um, you, the name of your blog, Nish Nush, mm-hmm. Tasty Treat yes. in Hebrew. Yeah, like a I, snack. Like a snack. Oh, my God, there's so much. First of all, I had to Google. I'm like, there has to be a bakery called Nish Nush somewhere. <laughs> and I, I only, I didn't go too deep into the Google, but I'm like, I'm not finding, like, there needs to, there should be, I'm like, is there, like, or it should be like a bait midrash, like a niche noosh. <laughs> where you're like, you learn a little bit of Torah, yeah. and then you eat a taste, then you make a tasty treat. That would be hilarious. <laughs> um, but where, yeah, where where did that surface? Well, and there is, a, I have seen in Israel a little, like, corner store called niche noosh. Mm. You know, like, an Israeli version of a mm. bodega. Mm. Um, mm. But my... When I was creating it, my boyfriend at the time was Israeli. And so I was talking to him about all these different titles. And there was, you know, like the more traditional things, like, I can't remember, but just very on the nose. 
And then we were talking, and he probably was just came up with and said, well, what about Nish Noosh? Um, so I definitely attribute it to him, that he was the one who, who suggested it. I did live in Israel at one point, and the two of us together, I wrote a blog when I was living in Israel about life in Israel, and just through a conversation with him, we came up with a title for that blog, which... I ended up calling Holy Balagan, mm-hmm. which I felt like also mm-hmm. very much summarized life in Israel. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just, it's those words like nishnush where you just, you can feel it go through your body. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of Yiddish words that are like that yes. too. Or sababa is another word yeah. that's like that. Yeah. So brilliant on the nishnush. Um and you you mentioned you talked about this idea of, of like yeah ingesting and and health and your recipes embrace that as well and um, and you lead a vegan lifestyle. Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing that? I am not exactly sure, but it started. You see it in my blog where I'm not eating dairy, and I'm starting to say okay instead of I give options like you can use cow milk or you could use non-dairy so I think I started becoming vegan around the time I started the blog so it's been like five or six years but it's not like I had this moment one day where I said okay I'm vegan or if I did I don't remember so it's been a process but I became vegetarian when I was about nine or ten again it's kind of fuzzy and then so the vegan's been like five or six years Mm -hmm. and what is what have you, um, what was that like just physically, even just transitioning? Did it feel, were there, um, did it feel um, good? Was there a B12 moment, <laughs> deficiency mm. moment? Were there times you to balance things out? I even had a B12 moment like two months ago. So mm. <laughs> um, I had tried to be vegan actually a few years before and it didn't work out well. And I think it's because I wasn't spending the time, I wasn't intentional enough with my meals and what I was cooking. So I was vegan except that I still ate eggs. And then I just sort of, I was working a crazy job and just having to eat out a lot and just not, I wasn't taking care of myself. And, um, so it just, it didn't, it wasn't successful. And then when I started again, this five or six years ago, it was very, pretty easy. And I think partly because I was more focused and able to spend the time. And also because vegan products had then at that point become ubiquitous. And it was so simple. It wasn't like I had to go and search out for like a soy milk or an almond milk and there were so many yogurts, and so there was no disruption in my life. And then on top of it, I was living in Los Angeles, which is the vegan heaven of America. And so, <laughs> and fresh produce, and fresh produce, and amazing farmers markets every day. And when I was working from home and able to make you know fresh bread and cook everything from scratch and not working these crazy hours, so it just made it very easy to to make that change. Mm-hmm. So it was like a time in your life location mm-hmm. that sort of supported that. Supported yeah. That. And you've, I was looking at some of the, um, some of your recipes. Um, you had a vegan um, hamantashen recipe last mm-hmm. year. Yeah. I, I want to try that. <laughs> that. looked really good. I mean, another thing I've realized with going vegan is 
most things are very easy to make into vegan in terms of um, baked goods and things like that. And people always say, oh, do you miss anything? And I honestly, there's nothing I miss. There's nothing that I haven't been able to recreate. I mean, I even was in New York last year at a vegan French restaurant and had creme brulee, so which is usually an egg-based dish. So um, I never, I never feel like I'm missing out on anything. And in general, I just feel so much better. And I have, I'm not, I know there are people who have chosen to be vegan who desperately miss meat or dairy, things like that. And I'm just not one of those people. Just not, yeah. And I find even in my own work, like guiding people around mm-hmm. wellness and food that, right, everybody's makeup is so different and everybody's mm-hmm. like health snapshot is so different. I, I've tried in the past couple years, I've tried being vegan and I'm just, I'm in like a perimenopausal moment mm-hmm. that it's, it really, I wasn't, I didn't feel built to mm-hmm. sustain that um, fully, but I'm, um, it's funny also, um, I'm in, I'm calling myself being in a Shemitah year because I'm 42 mm-hmm. and that felt significant mm-hmm. um and so I was in in reading your blog I was like well maybe I will kind of I, I want to mark this Shemitah year in mm-hmm. some ways so I'm like maybe I'll try for a month or or even five days a week I don't know I don't know yet it's not pulling so hard but um but it does feel like um I mean, I, I, I feel like in general, it, it can overwhelm many, I know people that I work with, like, but there's also so many great principles that come yeah. from it that, that could even just be drawn from yeah. just fresh vegetables. Yes. Or... And I think it's hard because people, there's so many emotional associations with food, mm-hmm. whether it's just things you personally love or a family recipe or just something in one's tradition. Yeah. And so it's just very, it's a very sensitive topic for people when you start talking to them about what they eat. It's such deep held beliefs and practices, I think often. And so it's not the same as if you told someone like, go get a new hairstyle or Mm -hmm. something like that's Mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it for people when you've been doing one thing your whole life, like if you always eat whatever, a chicken salad sandwich for lunch every day, and then suddenly mm-hmm. you're trying not to do that. It's very hard. Yeah. When, um, it's, uh, when I talk through people's food lives with them, like I kind of structure it around, um, I, I think I call it four or five Fs. And I'm only remembering the first three, but it's like foundation. Like, what is mm. your what are the foundational foods you like to eat? What's gonna make you feel good and grounded? Um, flow, mm-hmm. which is like, what are your food days like? What's your month like? What when do you get hungry during the day? The third one is um, feelings, and mm. so like it's sort of hitting all those notes yeah. that you're saying, and like it's an interesting idea to think through that from a vegan lens or just, or trying to adopt some of the vegan principles, mm-hmm. you know, some of the time of the week. Yeah. Um, to, to really build, to really help build it so that it feels sustainable in somebody's life. Yeah. And there's are, I mean, there's so many great organizations like the Reducitarian or someone like Mark Bittman who advocates for only eat meat after six o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or Meatless Monday, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. I think another thing about veganism, so when I first became observant, mm-hmm. I had a friend ask me, how can you do this? How can you turn off your phone? How can you only walk? How can you cut yourself off from the rest of the world? And I said, it's my way of saying no to our 24-7 lifestyle. And and there was many other reasons I was doing it as well, but part of it was that she really understood. She said, oh, okay. And I think, yes, veganism is now a multi-billion dollar industry, but it is in a lot of ways taking that same type of stand. Like I'm saying no to our government subsidized meat and dairy industry and all of the environmental um uh what's the word i'm looking for the environmental calamity that's caused as a result of eating meat mm-hmm. and also i'm t- i am taking back i'm defining what i'm going to eat and what healthy is as opposed to this our broader society saying you need to eat meat you need to eat dairy for calcium you don't get enough protein um and then how this very unhealthy way of eating is really Mm-hmm. ram down us from the government from large you know health associations things mm-hmm. like that so I think there are a lot of parallels of in different ways whether it's in a religious setting or in the food setting of being very defiant mm-hmm. also this theme of the the like personal in my personally in the body mm-hmm. how does this stance how does this position how does this um, how does this feel inside in, in mm-hmm. how does it work in my life and how does it feel inside me and then there's the global connected to this global larger yeah. piece of what I'm doing and it's yeah. interesting because it 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 seems similar veganism and then also actually this practice that you had um, back in 2014 of where do how does this text taste and feel in my body yeah and with this universal theme around it yeah so like they both it kind of have a similar that pull of that of the inside and mm-hmm. then connected to the universal and yeah yeah like what is and um and we have to take care of our bodies i mean mm-hmm. there this is a concept in judaism that i think it is such a cerebral religion often and that people there is can often be a disconnect between our bodies and the rest of our being Jewish and you know food is obviously critical to our health and so you know from Maimonides forward there's been rabbis talking about the importance of taking care of our bodies and our health and so forth and so if you're eating something that's certified kosher but is junk food or an animal pump with hormones or um, something that's just laden with sugar and fat, how is that really following Jewish law or ethics or morals? Yeah, I actually, there was a quote um, I pulled from an article I think you wrote. It said, you said, food becomes holy not only through blessings we say, but also how we grow and prepare it. 
Yeah. And that idea of, you know, we have this in the Jewish tradition prescribed blessings for mm-hmm. certain types of foods. Um, you know, and in this Tubishvat season where we, 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 we double down on those and really acknowledge the fruits mm-hmm. and the food. Um, and what you're saying is just by the, by the way we eat, by the, by, by the consciousness, we're, yeah. we're bringing in blessing through consciousness as well. Yeah. Which is a beautiful idea. Exactly. And I always look at it as we have this amazing opportunity. I feel so grateful that as Jews, every day, everything we do, we're challenged to live to the highest moral standards possible. And we're human and we're constantly failing and trying and failing again and trying. But that includes what we eat. And it's not, I look at food as not just for health. I look at food as also a tool. It's a tool for social justice. It's a tool for environmental justice. And every single thing that we choose to eat has some type of implication, both for ourselves and for the broader impact on the world. And all of this is supported in Judaism. I mean, I have a friend who's a rabbi who, when I was first starting on this journey, he said, Sarah, the entire book of Torah is a book of social justice. And yes, there's so many ways to interpret and understand Torah and people use Torah in many different, um, you know, there's many teachings beyond just social justice. But for me, food is part of social justice. And so if we are being challenged each day to live our lives to the highest standards as Jews, food is part of that. Mm -hmm. And food gives us the opportunity to protect the environment, to care for animals, to help workers, to ensure that um, we're saving, you know, water. All of those things are rolled up into everything we eat. And you also, I'm um, thinking about a story you, your most recent post retelling your um, travels to the South. Mm. And so you really, um, there's the layer of veganism and, and environmental responsibility and consciousness around what we're eating. And you tell stories um, of, of people and places also to sort of express this mm. idea. And um, actually the two that are coming up in my mind, one was your most recent trip to the South where you also share a story about um, how to prepare your recipes, how to prepare vegan grits. Mm-hmm. Another one that come to my mind that felt powerful was a trip to Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it was like a plum, a plum yeah. cake. That I'm so you impressed prepared. you read all this. <laughs> I just, I've been, even just going through them, I mean, yeah. so many pop out. Um, but could you say just a little bit more about either, you know, just those, those. Yeah. No, thank you for reading all of this. <laughs> so when I finished the year of the Parsha, then, um, and I did miss some, so I'm going to go back and do those this year, actually. But, and then I did a year of, um, I did recipes for each Rosh Chodesh. And then in my life, I started, um, I was at a point in my life where I started traveling a lot. And again, I was going all over the world, but wanted to go to the Jewish communities in all these places, no matter how small or obscure. The smaller, the smaller and the more obscure, the more I was drawn to going to the place. And then once again, I was going to these places and I needed to process it and share it. And so I was doing this through food. So um, 
so I went to Germany, um, this was a couple of years ago, and it was very much a exploration of Jewish history and the Holocaust and present day Jewish life in Germany. And I was in Munich and Berlin. And it was just so challenging and conflicting. And there was everything from going to all of these different sites and memorials all over Berlin to then having these powerful experiences like being at synagogue in Berlin and just experiencing that. And then having this man on Shabbat morning at Kiddush, he was celebrating his bar mitzvah and he explained how he found out that not only had his father been a Nazi, but that the entire town had been involved in um, the death of all of the Jews in this town. And that when he confronted his family about this, they would not renounce the Nazi party. And he was so devastated about this that he um, left his family and left the town and essentially wrote like a farewell letter to them and condemned them for there being Nazis and not and not um, renouncing it. And not only did he leave the town, but he then eventually converted to Judaism. So it was just mm. such an extraordinarily powerful experience to be in Berlin and have that. And the night before, I had been at a different synagogue, which ironically had been the synagogue that my father the rabbi had fled and became the rabbi at the synagogue my father had grown up at. Amazing. And at that one, there was four um, cousins who had come from Israel with their grandfather's sefer, um, with his prayer book. And he had fled Nazi Germany and had somehow ended up in Israel and had taken this prayer book with him and had never come back. And they had come back to bring it back to the synagogue. So it was just wow. so meaningful and so powerful and hmm. interspersed with all of the Jewish sites throughout Berlin. And then it was interesting because um, there was a vegan cafe, of course, in the neighborhood I was staying in. And they had a sign on the window that said, no Nazis. And so I was talking with the woman at the counter, why do you have this sign? And she had said that there had been some Nazis that had done something in the neighborhood. I can't remember what had happened exactly. And she said, you know, so we have this up saying, get out of our neighborhood. And in that place, I had had um, a cake, like the plum cake. And so I felt like, yes, I'm talking about Nazis and the Holocaust, and this is really heavy, and I don't want to just make light of it by having a cake, but I do want to share this. And having had this traditional fruit cake in this vegan cafe where in the 21st century, they're still battling Nazis in Berlin, um, kind of tied it all together. Mm -hmm. So I, I totally get that. <laughs> it's a <laughs> lot. It's, it's a lot. And like, and then there's this plum cake, right? It, exactly. It really. Um, and you most recently took in history in our own country mm -hmm. in the South. You yeah. visited the, Equal Justice Initiatives mm -hmm. Memorial mm -hmm. and the museum, yeah, and the museum, um, raising awareness and honoring those that lost their lives through lynching, um, as well as visiting other synagogues, yeah, 
It was, so I did this trip through, it was mostly Alabama and then Mississippi, New Orleans, and a little bit in Memphis. And it was, it was to visit civil rights sites and then also overlaid with Jewish history because I'm fascinated with Jewish communities um, in obscure places. And I, I realized that I had the same level of culture shock slash fascination slash personal investment or connection to it as I did when I was in Germany in terms of trying to understand my personal narrative, where I fit this in, where I fit into it. And then also as an American, this is so part of who we are and what that means and to understand that. And in terms of the intersection of the Jewish life and the civil rights, I mean, it was an ex it was such a powerful and emotional and at times very draining trip. But I think one of the things that I really struggled with and was fascinated by was that there was all these Jewish communities in these small towns. Like there's a synagogue in Selma. There was a synagogue I went to in the small town in Mississippi. And to reconcile Jews' role in Southern history and what that means. And it was very hard because it wasn't the, it wasn't the social justice leaders that I'd want, that I'd expected. And it was the complicity or lack of action, just taking a neutral stance that I found very disturbing. And it's not to say that all Southern Jewish communities were in that way, but there was, there wasn't this hmm. movement among Southern Jews the way there was of the Northern Jews who came down. Right, like the Freedom Rides. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All the Jews that you hear about that were like the leaders of the Civil Rights Movement mm -hmm. were not coming from the South. And hmm. when I met with the um, incredible Institute for Southern Jewish Life, a woman there, she said, look, in the same way that other whites spanned the political spectrum of the civil rights movement, Jews were the same. And, and um, which was really hard to take in. It was very hard. Mm. I think because I grew up in household where Judaism was about social justice and then how do you reconcile Jews standing idly by mm -hmm. in the civil rights movement and I, I I don't I'm not as versed on the history as you I'm not as versed in the history as you are um, but like just what comes to my mind is just this idea of migration mm -hmm. and like and where we settle yeah. And safety. Yeah. And for sure. Being within communities, um, norms within communities, and all of these things yeah. bring up more questions for, for me. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah. Survival. Um, and it's easy. It's I mean, look, it's also easy for me to come down like in 2019, when I was, you know, December 2019, and be like, how could they not have acted? Well, I mean, they were fleeing anti Semitism elsewhere, you know, and it's, easier to sit here and say that and they're living in a system of 
the clan, for example, mm. and mm. going up mm. against the clan, that's not a simple thing. So that's very complex. And just the societal relations, like how do you survive in that? Yeah. So, um, but it was also very painful to know that Jews were often benefiting from the system of enslaved people mm-hmm. and that the Lehman Brothers were got their start in Montgomery and that many Jews would have a slave, an enslaved person in their house. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that was the epicenter of slavery in the Deep South, but all of America was benefiting from slavery. So even if you were in the North, maybe you were running a textile mill that was getting the cotton from the South. So we're all responsible, but I think it's just, how do you, how do you take that in to know that? It's a lot to take in in the process. And you, and it, it sounds like you know, traveling for you, whether it's to the deep south, to Germany, to Italy, to India, mm-hmm. that you're taking in these stories, and 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 just as and, and like the recipe is a piece of that processing. Yeah, you're experiencing it, and in the your trip to the south, this um, you choosing something so simple and meaningful as grits. Yeah, it's 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 it it speaks volumes in a yeah. way. And I ate so much grits on that trip, and I seeked out grits, and I talked to people about how they would prepare their grits. And because I do find it fascinating, I love, in addition to visiting these Jewish communities, like just exploring local food and what local, local food culture is and how that manifests. And finding the vegan bakery in, exactly, in Germany. Which, yes, and also in New Orleans, the best vegan bakery ever. Um, Breads on Oak, which everyone should go to. But... I think also it's, I mean, like something like grits that is so quintessential Southern and it's so foreign outside of the South, but then it's a food that is so representative of the South in so many ways. And so how, I mean, how else could I capture this trip in terms of a food? I mean, I can't think of anything else that would, that's emblematic of the South. Yeah. So, I will say, can I just say one yes. thing? There was a synagogue, it was, um, there's a synagogue in um, Montgomery, and I was like on their website, and it was just their description of who they are. They described their founding as before the war between the states, and that they had endured economic and agricultural booms and busts and I couldn't believe I was reading these things and it's just really things like that were really hard (laughs) to take in it's really it's fascinating yeah uh Jewish history integrated into this very dark yeah foundation like part of America's foundational history it's very it's fascinating yeah it's, and I mean, I left with more answers than, I mean, questions rather than answers. And I think, you know, it's also very Jewish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll spend like the rest of my life and, you know, it's, 
It's, I mean, I think it's just like we're all complex beings and people are doing what they can to survive. And it's easy to get on like a moral high horse and come down there with my perspective. Like I grew up on the East Coast and well, why didn't people do this? Or why did people do this? Or whatever it might be. And it's, it's easier to stand back and judge people when there was probably a lot of fear and desire to have, you know, fit in as much as possible Mm -hmm. in such a brutal, oppressive system of white supremacy. Right. And we're also in a moment in this country as Jews to both, um, you know, with the, there's this, this rise of anti-Semitism here Mm -hmm. in the United States and this, reckoning with an identity of what it means to be white mm-hmm. in this country and you know, we're absorbing all the, the stories and, and kind of and, and owning this past this history and holding yeah. space for yeah. it because we can um and so um yeah i think it, it it's it's a very interesting time being jewish now here in mm-hmm. america um so Switching gears, of, you know, in, in closing, um, I mean, there's all of these big stories that you take in, whether it's, again, like our, just narratives from all of these, as you said, just Jewish communities that are kind of in, in funky places. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, also in, in line with taking in our stories and recreating stories through food. Um, so in this time, in this moment where we're in the month of Shvat, which is kind of a nice shift from like these, the really, really dark months. Mm. We're in this moment where we can sort of start thinking about the seeds, Mm -hmm. the seeds seeds we might grow, um, or the, the, the trees that Mm -hmm. are just getting ready to, um, that are flowing internally. Um, we're getting, we're sort of heading in more in the direction of, the month of Adar, the mm-hmm. month of Nisan, we're even right now telling the story of the Exodus and what happens after that. So there's really interesting themes to, to pull from and stories to pull from. Um, there's this very mild winter we're having. Yeah, um, which is scary. Which is, so there's all these things. I'm curious what, um, what foods are inspiring to you right now? What foods or mm. recipes? That's a really good question. Well, I, let's see. One of the things that I've been doing a lot of lately is making a lot of things that are stuffed and roasted. Mm -hmm. So um, I've been making and like a stuffed kabocha squash with like a black rice and then roasted fruit or Mm. things like that. But I mean, I'm always still eating, even though I'm not in California anymore, but even in DC, we still have amazing seasonal food. So I'm still always eating in season. Like I'm not going and buying, you know, like pineapples in Mm -hmm. February. Um, But I think also just, I mean, talking about, like Tuba Shvat, um, which I love. And um, 
it also, you know, and as you're talking about, you know, changing seasons and stuff, I mean, I have noticed lately I'm actually eating a lot of seeds and nuts and like putting a lot of those things in vegetables. And I think another thing is that in Judaism, it's so amazing that we have four new years. And so there's always this opportunity for renewal and for starting afresh and hitting that reset button. And I agree, Tupishvat is so incredible in that it's connecting to the earth, it's connecting to the food that we eat, and it's like the ultimate kind of Earth Day slash vegan celebration. <laughs> and like what better way to bring in the spring than thinking about the food that we're eating and being able to like get seedlings going in your house and start thinking about what the foods are going to be, you know, coming up in, you know, just a few months of the farmer's market. And, and I think the other thing is like with this opportunity with having all these new years, I mean, I was thinking about the Torah portion this week, Beshalach, and it's like very much about fear and courage. And it's, it is, you know, not not letting fear take hold in your life and having that courage. And with, like, the environmental crisis that we are living in now, it can be so dismaying and discouraging. Like, what can one person do? But literally, Tubishvat is saying, we are celebrating trees. We are grateful for everything the earth provides for us, and we can we can address this individually and collectively. So mm, beautiful. And actually that, and that connects for me and like this connection between fear, courage. I'm like, I'm thinking of like a stuffed squash mm. and like, you know, you got to scoop out the center. Yeah. There's the pieces of that. And then yeah. like incorporating this other piece and, and mm-hmm. holding it, you can kind of, it's Jewish, Jewish food 2.0. Yeah, exactly. There's like, there's, you know, many faces to God. There's many ways to interpret Torah. There's many ways to use food to, like, you know, get through, to understand Jewish concepts. So, um, yeah, and just also celebrating the abundance of what we have, mm-hmm. I think, is another thing of Tu B'Shvat. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for this oh my conversation. Gosh, this is amazing. This is- I loved it. Thank loved you. It. Thank you. So great. And now for some sweet notes. Sweet note one, edible midrash. As a teacher that I like to learn from, Aviva Zornberg, she describes midrash as the stories that unfold from within the stories. Recipes themselves can tell stories that emerge from ingesting teachings from Torah. While some text may feel dense, some of the characters we meet may seem confusing or complex, some of the themes joyful and even painful, food offers the color palette, as Sarah so beautifully described it, to further express and internalize and taste these stories. Sweet note two, eating in cycles is so Jewish. As a personal fan of the mystery that happens in transitions and the lessons we find in lead-up times, I love how Sarah marked the end of the seven-year Shemitah cycle, the agricultural cycle where the land rests for the year, like a Shabbat for the earth, 
Sarah added in this layer of meaning by cooking vegetarian and ultimately vegan recipes and used local produce. Sarah also marked the weekly cycle with a recipe, reflecting on Torah through food. I like to imagine how these kinds of cycles can bring meaning into our own food lives. As I mentioned, being 42 years old, I felt very drawn to the idea of a personal marking of a seven-year span of life, chunk of life, and what would marking that, what food shifts or recipes could celebrate that life moment. Sweet note three, how we as individuals configure our food lives creates an active living food blessing. This idea of blessing felt refreshing. So the series of steps we take from farm to farmer's market to vegetable garden to the table to all the thoughtfulness around all of the steps and all of the ingredients, these form a food blessing. Also the idea of creating clear boundaries and setting a personal bar around everything from organic to when do I want to focus on plant-based eating to will this food support my health? All of this feeds into that living food blessing. Sweet note four, Judaism always asks us to gauge where am I, the individual, in relation to the larger whole. Sarah further uses food to pose this question as she integrates personal experiences traveling around the country and the world, taking in stories about people and Jewish communities, and incorporates all of these experiences into one culminating recipe. These recipes can be simple and complex with nuance. I can imagine myself staring into this steamy bowl of creamy grits and asking really big, really tough questions. All of these recipes come with notes of taste, texture, color that can somehow reflect large experiences and penetrate into really deep meaning. So whatever it is you're eating in the coming months, I recommend checking out Sarah's website, Niche Noosh. I'll uh, have the link on my own website, redlentilconsulting.com, and you can find some of Sarah's inspiring recipes. And perhaps may we all find that greater alignment with what we are deeply chewing on, with what is on our plates. I'd like to thank Sarah Newman for this delightful conversation. We could have talked for hours and hours and hours. And I'd like to thank Ethan Bayless for his music as composer, his support as co-producer and sound engineer, and his general awesomeness. I am Jody Bayless, and this is Purple Honey.